Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. And welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And joining us this week is a very special guest. Please welcome Michaela Coyle, pronouns they, them, a lesbian writer from Anchorage, Alaska. They're the engagement editor for the website Literary Hub, and they hold an MFA in fiction from the New School. In their free time, they read fantasy novels and make a lot of jam. They're also the author of the brand new book available now everywhere fine books are sold, Goblin Mode, How to Get Cozy, Embrace Imperfection, and Thrive in the Muck. Welcome, Michaela. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's very exciting. I'm ready to have a goblin morning. Okay, I'm really excited to get into talking about this book and about the idea of goblin mode and about why we're all going goblin mode these days. But to like warm us up, I'm wondering if you can tell us, Michaela, what is the most goblin-y thing you've done this week? I imagine that there are probably like many, many things that I am just like, that's normal, but it's actually maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday, I got really excited about a bird. So that felt kind of goblin-y. I like ran around the house to tell my siblings about it. It was a really cool bird moment. Um, We have like ornamental rhubarb growing in the backyard, which has like these huge, huge leaves Mm -hmm. that are like faced up. And so they fill with water when it rains. And there's a little bird using one like a bird bath. (gasps) Oh, that's crazy. That was like nature (laughs) in action. That is nature in action. Yeah. And then I also switched to a natural laundry powdered soap instead of Tide Pots. So that is also my other goblin thing, I think. Highly recommend. I'm super into laundry. Okay. My God, I hate doing laundry. <laughs> <laughs> it still kind of sucks. I hate it so much. I think the number of times I rewear my clothes before washing them is one of the most gobliny things about me. Oh, There's yeah, a same. lot of gobliny things about me. <laughs> I'm disgusting. Ew. I know that this is not an episode about laundry, but Michaela, have you tried laundry strips? I have not. I am evangelical about laundry strips. They're That's where instead of washing your clothes, you just get no. nude. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hannah, I would never. Ourselves are never nude, so that's... <laughs> 
No, there it's the same idea as like laundry powder, except it's like condensed into strips. And so you just rip off a strip. And if you're feeling fancy, you can rip it into smaller strips and sprinkle it into your laundry. And oh my God. Whoa. It reduces packaging, it reduces plastic, it reduces water consumption. I'm a big fan. I don't know if that's goblin y, but Well, I wrote the book and I am saying it that it is. Okay. Okay. I have to say, like your bird example, Michaela, I was like, okay, good. I know what goblin mode is. But then the laundry soap, I, I was like, oh no, I don't know what goblin mode is anymore. So Well, you know what? Let's find out. Oh, good idea. It's time for Why This? Why Now? Where we ask the materialist question, what are or were the historical, ideological, and material conditions for our object of study to become zeitgeisty? Oh, God, I love the word zeitgeisty. Okay, in this episode, we are asking why goblin mode is so danged zeitgeisty that it was the 2022 word of the year chosen by the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm, Great free marketing for me. Fancy. Right? Like, so (laughs) really helpful. So I was like, okay, well, let's start with what the OED has to say about this word. So they define it as, quote, a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations, end quote. And they offer us the following first example of use, because that's the fun thing that OAD does, is that they, they record early examples of usage, which is why it's the best dictionary. Anyway, it was a 2009 tweet by somebody named Jen F., <laughs> who wrote, M was in full hyperactive goblin mode last night. It was as if she ate a bag of sugar-coated candy, then washed it down with a few Red Bulls. That's a good night, but a bad morning. Yeah. Okay, but then it went viral, right, Hannah? Yeah, then it went viral. So it sort of picked up momentum between 2009 and 2022, but it's sort of big breakout moment as a term was a made-up headline that Twitter user pudding person (laughs) created (laughs) like they photoshopped this but it says julia fox opened up about her difficult relationship with kanye west quote he didn't like when i went goblin mode (laughs) (laughs) end quote and that was kind of the moment that goblin mode broke into like I guess, mainstream media, Hmm. certainly when it got the attention of institutions like the OED. So, Michaela, can you tell tell us how you came across Goblin Mode? Was it one of these tweets? I imagine that it probably was the Julia Fox tweet or, like, a riff on that particular meme. I think, like, the first one that I really saw was, like, a tweet or a meme or something that said, like, Your Honor, I'm sorry I was going goblin mode, which is also a classic. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was funny. It meant nothing to me. Now it means everything. (laughs) So I have an important follow-up question. (laughs) At what point did you write the book, though? Was it when it still meant nothing and now it means everything? Tell me. So it's actually the way that I wrote the book is interesting. I was hired to write it by the publishing company, which is not something that people ever talk about, but is very common because publishers will like see a hole in the market and they'll be like, well, we want to write a book about teens living in New York. So let's do Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl was another such book. Warrior Cats was another such book. I don't know what (gasps) hole in the market they were seeing. I mean, they were right. They were like, there are cats. not yeah. enough cats. <laughs> warrior cats. <laughs> <At> war. <laughs> so part of what we've got to do collectively here is understand why Gobble Mode became a big enough deal that a publisher like reached out to somebody and was like, hey, you have an MFA. <laughs> Write us a book about Goblin Mode. Like, you know, how does it become significant enough? So for me... The obvious context for the rise of Goblin Mode is the COVID-19 pandemic and the various kinds of psychological and emotional impacts that lockdown and reemergence had on us, including things like a really significant shift in the norms of professional dress and behavior, that like we're all working from our homes so everybody gets really into being sort of comfy 
And when you're never leaving your house, you sort of gradually turn it into like a smelly little burrow. (laughs) Your workspace is just like a pile of blankets full of chip crumbs. Like, just me? (laughs) No, surely not. A nice little nest. (laughs) I also think that the pandemic accelerated conversations about gender performance and dress in a way that opened up a lot of conversations about rethinking our relationship to like the performance of our genders. And in general, I think just sort of made us all into weird, feral little guys. And I think because so many professional people had to start working from home, we got to see the interiority of their weird little feral lives that we would never have seen otherwise. Like, do you remember the news anchor or like special reporter who was... Yeah, the like British fancy man who was talking to BBC. And then his kid who was like, we all remember the kid just comes like charging into the room. The mom is in the bathroom crawling on the floor, (laughs) trying to drag the child out. (laughs) In that particular case, it's like, oh, a reminder that this very serious man not necessarily is a goblin, but certainly lives with a goblin. (laughs) (laughs) At least one. (laughs) At least one goblin in his home. Yeah, and that goblin is like 50% Mm -hmm. his DNA. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which suggests you've got some goblin in you somewhere and we can all Mm -hmm. tell now. Yeah, I love that. I love that as a moment when we all just had to acknowledge that professionalism is an act. It's not real. It's just a performance (laughs) underneath every fancy pundit or expert is so many sticky jam hands. (laughs) It's sticky jam hands all the way down. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So usually I go on at length in this segment about other sort of possible responses to the question, why this, why now? But I figured we've got an expert. So maybe, Michaela, you can tell us, since you've written a whole book on the topic, if you've got a sense of why why goblins are really... um, emerging into the, mm, what's a word you might use for this? Oh, zeitgeist? Yeah, I mean, I think that like before the pandemic, we spent so much time outside of our houses and we didn't really have to think about the space in which we like actually lived. And then being locked down, you're like, oh man, it's ugly in here. Or like, it's not cozy. Or like, I need more blankets (laughs) and more chip crumbs. Stat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think that that like, just made us more aware of like the fact that we need a little more coziness in our lives that we are capable of bringing that into our lives and it just really shifted everybody's priorities in like so many ways but I think it definitely emphasized I mean the pandemic I mean definitely emphasized the ways that we can take care of ourselves in like sort of small simple ways and also it emphasized the fact that like There's so much acting that goes on when you have to interact with people constantly. And when you're suddenly alone all the time, you have to like face all of this performance and be like, ooh, maybe that's not really who I am. Maybe I am like way weirder Mm -hmm. and like stickier (laughs) than that. Yeah. Michaela, can I ask you about the OED's definition because the way that you're describing goblin mode sounds like oh we needed to find a way to take care of ourselves we needed to like make ourselves more comfortable or recognize the things that weren't working for us but the terms unapologetically self-indulgent lazy slovenly or greedy really feel judgy. Oh, they feel so judgy. (laughs) Yeah, in a way that your description of goblin mode is very like, no, this is good. This is good for us and it's good for the world. Whereas the OED is like, we observe that this sucks, (laughs) that this is bad. And you people who do it are bad. Exactly. Yeah, I think that like my book, Goblin Mode, it's about the goblin core lifestyle, which is not exactly the same thing as goblin mode. They overlap in a lot of ways because they are about sort of being feral, being a little guy. But I think that Goblin Core is more of like a sort of warm lifestyle 
where you're trying to like return to nature a little bit, like care for yourself more, like be more part of a community. Whereas the phrase goblin mode doesn't necessarily have like an explicit community and culture surrounding it. It's kind of just like a joke. So I think that the OED definition is like, yeah, it's kind of saying the same thing, but that I'm saying, but in like a judgy way. And also it's like a little bit anti-Semitic. Like I talk at the beginning of the book about how like goblin stereotypes are like historically very anti-Semitic and goblins are used to represent Jewish people and they're greedy and they're dirty, et cetera. Bad, 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 bad. And this uses several sort of phrases or ideas that kind of come from that, which I'm not (laughs) wild about. You heard it here first. Michaela Coyle, not wild about anti-Semitism. I'm not for it. (laughs) (laughs) So I just think that's something to be aware of. (laughs) Yeah, but there's something so profoundly queer for me in the way that Goblin Core takes Goblin Mode as a kind of like, oh, it's something we need, it's something we're all being drawn to, but like, we feel ashamed of it. Like, you feel, you know, like, you know it's bad and you have to stop doing it, but like, oh, you're going goblin mode. And like, the profound queerness of being like, actually, what if it's good? Actually, what if it, what if it rules? Actually, what if being sticky is not something to be ashamed of and is kind of super cool? Exactly. So, Michaela, you open the book by talking about, like, who embraces Goblin Core and why. So, who is Goblin? I think that it's a lot of people who are not generally accepted by mainstream society. Like, it definitely attracts a lot of queer people, a lot of neurodivergent people, people of color, disabled people. Because it's all about, like, pushing back against this idea that you have to be a certain way in order to, like, be allowed in society or like be a person and you know so many people have already just like by being alive have been pushing back against that or have had problems pushing back against that and so I think it's like really cool that there is this movement in lifestyle that's so strongly based around like "Mm, no what if that's not the best way to be like what if being white and cis and male and able-bodied is like a way to be but it's not the only way to be There's other ways to be. I think that a lot of people have already been, you know, pushing back against these norms just by existing. And I think it's really cool that there's like this whole lifestyle built around the idea that like there's a better way. Life could be different. The world could be better. And it can like start small, but we can get there. You know, I really believe in that. Like it could just start with letting yourself eat chips in bed yes it can start there (laughs) yeah yeah so as you know one of the things we do in this here podcast is bring some theory in to help us think about our objective study and I was sort of going back and forth about what theoretical framework I wanted to offer us Until I read the following passage, and I'm actually going to ask, Michaela, because this is from your book, I'm going to ask you to read this quote, please. Quote, people are gross all the way down, but we're all equally gross, and we're all gross for a reason. We need earwax and snot and fingernails in order to live. Organs are icky goo sacks, but you would die without the icky goo sacks that are your brain, heart, lungs, and more. End quote. Mm. Beautifully said. Okay, so I want to talk about icky goo sacks. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> In the theory we need. <laughs> I actually have to go. Um. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. It's theory time, and today I finally get to talk about one of my favorite theories ever, the abject, Michaela. Is this a term you've encountered before? I have heard it in the phrase, like, abject horror. That's it. Which I assume just always meant, like, particular or something. I don't know. Yeah, in that phrase, it sounds like it means, like, extreme or deep. Um, But it means something so much (laughs) grosser. (laughs) Marcel, what about you? I do have some familiarity with the abject 
both personal and um, <laughs> scholarly. <laughs> so I know that the abject originally comes from Julia Kristeva, but I've never actually read Kristeva's work on the abject. I've only read Elizabeth Gross's work on the abject. So, Marcel, I will be making reference both to Julia Kristeva and Elizabeth Gross. Thank goodness. So the abject is Kristeva's term. She invented it. It was during that great period of high theory where people were just inventing things <laughs> left, right, and center. Sounds nice. Uh-huh. Sort of most famously, she wrote about it in a 1982 work called Powers of Horror, an essay on abjection. But I think she'd actually coined the phrase prior to that book. So Kristeva, she's a living thinker and writer. She's a Bulgarian-French feminist philosopher, and she's best known for her feminist and post-structuralist interventions into psychoanalysis. Mm. So like she writes back to and about Lacan a lot, and I kind of famously refuse to understand Lacan. So we're not, we're just, we're simply, <laughs> famously. I famously won't. I don't and I won't, so we're not going to. But I do want to explain one key aspect of psychoanalysis, just so we kind of understand what Chris Davis is trying to get at, which is that what psychoanalysis is trying to sort of think about a lot of the time is how we as people gradually develop our understandings of ourselves as subjects. So like how we go from being this like baby that's like an undifferentiated like part of the mother's body's ecosystem to being like a coherent, self-contained individual who's tidally boundaried and distinct from the other. So we can say, this is me and this is myself, and then those are other people and they're not me. What's important here is that Kristeva is interested in how obsessed psychoanalysis is with the rejection of the mother, and she is also interested in using psychoanalysis to think about our sort of cultural disgust towards women's bodies. Mm. So she's like, cool, so there's this developmental process whereby the child needs to differentiate themselves from the mother, and that includes rejecting the mother's body and our connection to it. And that's what she's interested in is this sort of like the subject forms through the rejection of the maternal. Okay, so Hannah, is the abject like exclusively maternal? Not quite. So the abject is what threatens the boundaries of the autonomous subject and thus threatens to return us to a state of non-subjectivity, like pre-subjectivity, like it threatens to break us down and break our boundaries down. So here are the main examples Kristeva uses of the abject, the things that make our boundaries feel porous and disintegrating are vomit, shit, menstrual blood, corpses, and, of course, her favorite reference, the weird skin that forms on the top of milk when you warm it up and then let it cool down again. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely categorize milk skin and corpses equivalently. It's one of those things when you read philosophy and you're like, you were looking for examples <laughs> around your kitchen. <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's why philosophers are always like, ah, let me come up with an example. Uh, a table. <laughs> you're like, come on, dude. <laughs> anyway, the point of all of these things is that they remind us in essence that we are made of meat. Like our bodies are leaky and porous and decaying. The way Elizabeth Gross puts this, the body is not only corporeal, but also has tenuous boundaries. Like, literally, our bodies are, like, falling apart and leaking all the time. Um, I'm going to need you to tell me who Elizabeth Gross is, more specifically. She's a professor at Duke University, and she's responsible for popularizing a lot of French feminist philosophy amongst North American feminist scholars because she was, like, reading it, helping to translate it, writing books about it in the later 80s and early 90s. So her sort of big contributions in this area are her 1989 book, Sexual Subversions, and then her 1994 follow-up, Volatile Bodies. Volatile Bodies is the one that probably, if you've done a feminist philosophy course, you might have read Volatile Bodies, but um, 
for reasons of what books my library has available as an accessible ebook, we will be quoting from <laughs> sexual subversions in this episode. Nice. And it's fine because she says a lot about Kristeva in that one, too. So in Sexual Subversions, she introduces some of the key concepts in Kristeva's work, including, of course, the abject, mm -hmm. which she describes as, quote, a sickness at one's own body, at the body beyond that clean and proper thing, the body of the subject. Abjection is the result of recognizing that the body is more than in excess of the clean and proper, end quote. Mm. So it's like, I want my body to be like enclosed and tidy and manageable. I want it to sort of map onto my sense of myself as a like cleanly distinguished subject. But when I remember that it doesn't, mm -hmm. that like actually my body is a colony for a billion bacteria, that like freaks me out because it challenges. It reminds me that my body is in excess of what... I want it to be from the perspective mm. of my subjectivity. Michaela, have you seen the movie A League of Their Own? Oh, yeah, obviously. I'm gay. <laughs> so this idea makes me think of that scene in A League of Their Own when all of the baseball players have to go to their, like, beauty school evaluation where the beauty expert, I guess, walks through and decides if they are, like, tidy enough, put together enough, beautiful enough. And, Straight enough. And that is the subject. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure, because the queer body is a leakier body. Mm -hmm. Yes. I feel, am I, like, a misogynist for still thinking that this is kind of gross? <laughs> no, it's supposed to be okay. nice. <laughs> like, like, it's, you know, part of part of Chris Davis' point is that that it's gross, that it's kind of instinctively gross. Mm -hmm. That you're like, oh, disgusting, the things that threaten. Like, we have taboos around these things for a reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, speaking of gross things, Michaela, I'm going to ask you to read the next slightly longer quote from Elizabeth Gross. Quote, bodily fluids, wastes, refuse, feces, spit, blood, sperm, etc., are examples of corporeal byproducts provoking horror at the subject's mortality. The subject is unable to accept that its body is a material organism, one that feeds off other organisms and, in its turn, sustains them. The subject recoils from its materiality, being unable to accept its bodily origins, and hence also its imminent death." End quote. Yeah, theory! <laughs> okay, so... If I'm understanding this quote correctly, the abject is the fluids and gunk that reminds us that we're just organisms as opposed to a league of their own subjects. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to quote uh, great feminist thinker Michaela Coyle, <laughs> people are gross all the way down. So true. So true. I had a friend once tell me that I could never be a dyke because I didn't like menstrual blood. <laughs> it's a fascinating take. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Sorry, let me let me correct myself. So this friend told me that I could, quote, never be a dyke, end quote, because I didn't want to sit in a red tent with other women while we were all menstruating. And I feel vindicated. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> what I will say is that friend of the podcast, Claire Mulcahy, and I once presented at a Queering Ireland conference Ooh. where we were both giving papers on Irish-Canadian lesbian author Emma Donahue. And Claire was specifically talking about representations of queer desire in Donahue's work and read a quote from a short story about how much the protagonist liked going down on her girlfriend when she was menstruating. And, her, you know, her argument was, like, part of what's subversive about that is, like, a sort of queer refusal to be disgusted by menstrual blood and by menstruating bodies. And, like, every man in that room, like, made an audible sound of disgust in a way that I was like, proves the point, actually. So... I think a really important distinction, Marcel, here is between the 
sort of unfair obligation your friend presented to you of like, you you don't get to be queer unless you like this versus the actual impact of stigma and a sort of shared universalized disgust with certain kinds of bodies and things that bodies do. Okay. So there are actually really good reasons why it's important that we manage human waste properly. Like, poop actually is full of bacteria, and if we, like, poop near our drinking water sources, we'll get sick. Yeah. There are several plagues in history that attest to this. Yeah. And also, in the world of international development, it's really hard to get anybody to fund building proper toilets or sewage systems because we have so much cultural stigma around even acknowledging the fact that people poop that nobody wants to, like, fund proper sewage, right? Like, it's fine. Menstrual blood doesn't need to be stigmatized, doesn't need to be taboo in the same way that poop does because there's actually nothing dangerous about menstrual blood. It's fine if it's not your thing, (laughs) but our vociferous social stigma against menstrual blood and against bodies that menstruate is obviously an extremely dangerous social stigma that is aligned with misogyny. And the fact that mentioning menstrual blood and mentioning lesbians being not disgusted by it in a room full of men, they all felt totally comfortable, like vocally being disgusted by references to lesbian sex, like tells us something about how we're comfortable talking about bodies. Anyway, Marcel, I know in your case, that this is definitely not misogyny mm-hmm. because you also think cum is disgusting. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Marcel is disgusted by leaky bodies. She just doesn't like the fact that bodies leak. I have been, I've been indoctrinated by the taboos of our society, and I acknowledge that that is terrible. However, that is just how I am. <laughs> I don't. I don't like other people's fluids. And I know you've already absolved me because I really don't like semen, but I don't like anybody's blood. I'm very comfortable with my own from whatever place it comes. <laughs> like, I have no problem with my own. But the second, like, when one of my kids, like, hurts themselves and is bleeding, like, they they bump into something or they, like, bit their tongue or whatever, I'm useless. So, you know, further to what you're saying, Marcel, this isn't a matter, really, of personal taste. The The point of the abject is the way that it explains how culturally we justify disgust with maternal bodies, which are, like, characterized by their leakiness and by their, like, breaking down of the boundary between self and other because literally you're growing another person's body in yours. So the subject as a philosophical concept, is self-contained, differentiated, and orderly, in part because notions of subjectivity are rooted in philosophy written by white men. And so they're arguing that subjectivity is synonymous with the way that they exist in the world. So the outward signifiers of being a subject, of being clean and proper, are masculinized signifiers, white signifiers, class signifiers, right? That you're expected to look and seem clean in a way that aligns both with our notions of subjectivity, but clearly aligns our notions of subjectivity with subjectivities that belong to some people and not to others. Is is that why instead of just having an aisle at the shopper's drug mart that says menstrual products, it says bullshit like feminine paper. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think part of it is at the root, people who want to refuse a shift to language of like bodies that menstruate. Right. Or like period products instead of feminine hygiene products. Part of it is like, well, we can't name it. It's just a gross thing ladies do. Right. And it's like, okay, well, one, not only ladies menstruate. Mm Mm-hmm. And two, not all women menstruate. And three, calling it feminine products 
is basically like, <laughs> what do we what do we know about ladies? Will ladies be bleeding? And they just stick the word hygiene in there to make it seem like it's like science or something. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. So here's kind of where I want to leave us with this thinking about the abject, which is that in Western society, we classify some bodies as inherently more abject than others, like as less clean, as more animal, less human, less rational. And that classification is key to the political force that the concept of the abject has. So we see it play out all over the place. A couple of examples that came to mind very quickly for me were the anti-Blackness in professional dress expectations, Mm. particularly around hairstyles, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea that like natural hairstyles are unprofessional and not appropriate for the office or the way that gender-affirming care for trans people is being reframed by the right as mutilation. Right, 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 right. So like a violation of the sort of inherent self-containedness and naturalness of the body and its boundaries. Mm Mm-hmm. Which means that there is subversive political potential in embracing the abject for the ways that it subverts and undermines patriarchal notions of subjectivity and how bodies are supposed to be. Hmm. Which leads me to my thesis statement. I want to know what it is. You got to tell me. I can't wait to tell you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, Hannah, hit us with your best thesis. Okay, here we go. The COVID-19 pandemic took us out of many of the public spaces where our bodies and behaviors are consistently policed by cultural norms. Even for those frontline workers who were not subject to stay-at-home orders, the norms of bodily presentation and intersubjectivity were fundamentally disrupted. This disruption was amplified by the bodily anxieties that came with the awareness of a highly contagious and potentially deadly disease that constantly threatened the borders of our bodies. The result was a heightened awareness of our bodies as abject, leaky, porous, material, and animal, and particularly within the communities most marginalized by patriarchal expectations of subjectivity and embodiment, a subversive embrace of the abject via the celebration of everything sticky, messy, slimy, dirty, and unapologetically corporeal. This subversive celebration of the abject finds its clearest form in the rise of the term goblin mode. In this essay, I will. Hannah, this is so smart. You have really just brought these things together in the most beautiful, elegant, disgusting way possible. Oh, so disgusting. I love it. Yeah, great. Good. (laughs) Okay, we're done. Bye. (laughs) Yeah, that, that is, you know, it's exactly what I was thinking. You put it into words, like... I know, I read your book. I sensed yeah, it yeah, all yeah. in there. Yeah, and that's <laughs> also exactly how I would have said it in that really smart, intelligent way. No, because you were, you were writing a book for people to read and enjoy, so <laughs> you said it differently. I mean, I think there is definitely, like, in Goblin Core, like, a celebration of, like, decay. And, like, especially in nature, like, especially fungus and things like that. Things that sort of rise up like after a death occurs, the way that things naturally deteriorate over time. I think that those are like really central to like goblin core and goblin mode. You know, the abject and the leakiness and the porousness of our bodies is linked to a lot of feminist thinking around intersubjectivity as opposed to like firm like 
I'm a person over here and you're a person over there. It's like, oh, actually, the way we are in relation to each other is like inherent to who we are. So like Mm. part of what is me is you and part of what is you is me. And that understanding that like our boundaries are more porous than Western (laughs) philosophy would have us believe (laughs) makes me think about the like queer and feminist celebration of mushrooms. Mm. Because there's so much fascination with the way they are these, like, complex, intersubjective, networked, um, like, roots of connection that are sort of, like, under the surface. Like, you see a mushroom pop up, and Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, underneath, there's, like, this mycelial network that connects the mushroom in with all of these other things, and it's, like, feeding off decay and living in the, like, disintegrating material of its own death. It's, like, punk rock and goth and witchy and weird as hell. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, it is this sort of rejection of, like, fear of intersubjectivity, fear of death, fear of impermanency, fear of the fact that, like, I'm I'm a little guy made out of meat and one day my body will break down. And then other little guys will just pop up all over it. Sorry, guys, I hate to break it to you, but when I die, you have to bury me in the yard and then a bunch of tiny little Hannahs are going to pop up. (laughs) (laughs) Little tiny ones. Okay, so something that I'm thinking about right now is the way that Goblin Core, as you describe it, Michaela, as something that emerges during the COVID-19 pandemic, Goblin Core really seems to conflict with the kind of individualist resistance to public health mandates that we saw happening in a lot of places. Do you want to talk about like what it is about Goblin Core that like because it kind of sounds individualistic, but it doesn't seem to have that same kind of hostility that I'm not wearing a mask <laughs> kind of does. Yeah, does yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I think that whenever we talk about sort of a form of self-care, it automatically brings up this idea of like self-centeredness, which I think is like, you know, not great because I think it's important to take care of ourselves. I do also think that the idea of self-care has been very co-opted by capitalism and it's like less meaningful now. But I think that like the goblin form is more about like genuinely like checking in with yourself, seeing how you're actually feeling in any given situation, seeing how you can like actually improve your experience like in small ways you know you don't have to like buy anything to be goblin core like you just have to like care about yourself a little bit more and i think that even though the idea of caring about yourself seems sort of individualistic i think it is like an important step to caring about others because i do think that you can care about others better if you are comfortable with yourself and in your environment. And if you feel more stable and good, like it's easier to look out for others. And I also think that like the goblin form of self-care is a lot of things that are inherently good for others. Also, like it's like, oh, living a lifestyle that uses less waste, that's good for you, but it's also good for the earth. Like living a lifestyle where you're, you know, celebrating nature more, good for you, also can be good for others. There's so many things that are good for us that are just good, you know? We don't have to, like, make it a selfish thing, I guess. You gotta don your mask before you help the person next to you put on their mask in an airplane. And it's important for you to wear your mask, too. Yeah, it makes me think of of how much in your book, Michaela, you emphasize the sort of, like, collectivity and community inherent that, like, It's okay if, as a goblin, you want to have your own little burrow where you go off by yourself. But, like, you're also always part of a community of other goblins. (laughs) What you just made me think about when you were talking about, like, taking care of yourself first is, like, okay, you know, you work in a workplace where there are, like, particular expectations of dress. But let's say you're a little neurospicy and uncomfortable binding clothes make it really hard for you to function and like maybe the pandemic means that you like really are just not willing to put on a binding garment again and it's like actually if you let me show up dressed in 17 layered scarves 
then like I'm actually going to be able to show up for everybody a lot more. So like if we let go of some of these like really absurd outwardly signifying norms of what it means to like be ready to be in public spaces with other people, then like more of us are going to be able to like actually show up for each other in a way that actually makes a difference. And if you show up wearing your 17 scarves, then maybe there's other people in your workplace who are probably also uncomfortable in their clothes and are like, oh, wait, maybe I can wear what I want. And then they're also working better. You know, like mm-hmm. I think that like yeah. people seeing you show up for yourself is like actually a really impactful, meaningful thing because it's so like we don't do that. You know, we never like show up for ourselves in like a visible public way. And I think that when you do that in a way that other people can see, that's like, I don't know, it can mean a lot to people. Hmm. Yeah. We seem to have this cultural narrative around, like, self-care that insists on separating it out Mm -hmm. from community care. Mm -hmm. Like, even that oft-used metaphor of, like, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first, it's not like, because your life also matters. It's like, because if you pass out, you won't be able to be awake to help other people stay alive. Like, it's your job to stay alive because you've got work to do. Um, Often feels like the subtext of that version (laughs) of put your oxygen mask on first, right? Like, keep yourself functioning because you've got kids to take care of. And so actually, it's irresponsible of you to fall apart. Like, often feels to me like the lesson. And when we look at people, like the idea of like doing a good deed, it's like, oh, we kind of admire it more when it comes at the expense. Like, it's purer when the person doesn't experience any pleasure in it themselves. Like, oh, if you've really sacrificed yourself, that's really giving to your community. And that feels like a very strategic capitalist message that leads us away from the realities of intersubjectivity and the fact that it's like, I'm not talking about an oxygen mask now, I'm talking about a a pandemic mask. It's not wear a mask because you don't want to get sick. It's wear a mask because it does both. Because we are so much more biologically connected to each other than we often want to pretend that we are. And so I can't tidally slice off my well-being from your well-being because that's imagining that I am autonomous to a degree that I'm simply not and that the pandemic really, really, like, uncomfortably reminded us all because we were like, oh, fuck, we all breathe the same air. Like, there are things coming out of you and going into me whenever I'm standing next to you. And that's, like, freaks us out. Yeah, I think we're, like, a lot more aware of how I, for example, am a lot more aware of how much, like, spit particles come out of my face when I talk than I was before the pandemic. It never occurred to me that people were just inhaling my fluids when we were talking. Okay, so we're talking about capitalism and we're talking about consumerism. And I think an anti-consumerist bent is really present throughout your book that like Goblin Core is not about consuming things. Like it kind of seems to be like inherently environmental. Can you talk a little bit more about how attention to consumerism and attention to like the long-term impacts of your decisions on, like, the environment is part of what Goblin Core means? Yeah. So I think that, like, first of all, I don't think you're a bad person if you buy things. (laughs) You know, that said, I don't like the society of capitalism. Like, I don't like the world that it creates. I think that as an individual, like, sometimes you buy things, fucking whatever. So I think that Goblin Core is, like, I mean, it's pushing back on this world where you're just expected to constantly be buying and consuming and building up more stuff. And I think that capitalism is the thing that makes all of the other forms of phobias and inaccessibility and hate like possible. Like, I don't think it's the only thing, but I do think that it is like one of the major factors that makes it like not only possible, but like important to keep up these biases and these hatreds. And I think that since Goblin Mode is about, like, not holding on to these inexplicable biases, like, it does push back against that. Yeah. I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I'm thinking about how sort of part of the capitalist obsession with 
consumption ties into, you know, capitalism and white supremacy, indivisible, two bad tastes that taste bad together. And rooted in both capitalism and white supremacy is this sort of fantasy of immortality, that if you are clean enough, if you are self-contained enough, if you are self-managed enough, if you buy the right things in the right ways, you'll live forever. There's this fucking, like, super expensive gym in Vancouver, you know, that's, like, selling you all of these, like, weird superfood stuff. And their tagline is, future-proof your body. Oh, cool. (laughs) And that right? Like, that's the the yeah. capitalist fantasy that we see. Like, this is what tech bros are doing when they try to, like, yeah. biohack. Right. It's like, if I just do everything perfectly, I'll live forever. And that idea that if you, like, consume in the right ways, that you too, like plastic, will never decay. You will just live forever in the ocean, I guess, like the plastic does. But there's You know, when you embrace the goblin, which includes recognizing that you're like a weird little guy made of meat and you're going to die one day because that's what weird little guys do. They age and they decay and their bodies fall apart. And that's just all part of it. And like, actually, it's kind of neat. Yeah, it's like not just like embracing death and decay, but like actually celebrating it and being like, I am decaying right now in this moment. As we speak, my body is breaking down a little bit. And maybe that's cool. And maybe it's cool that like everything in nature also does that. And that is like a connection that I have with every single living thing in the world. You know, I think that's kind of like profound that we're all dying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And when you actually really understand that, I think that that disempowers a lot of what capitalism is trying to sell us Mm. because it's trying to sell us this fantasy of possible immortality. And it's like, listen, I don't believe in it. I don't really want it. Don't want to live forever. And similarly, like, the fantasy of non-aging. Like, well, actually, if I think aging's cool and I think decay is neat, then I don't need to spend a million dollars trying to stay young forever, trying to stay thin, trying to future-proof my body. Hmm. That, like, a lot of the sales pitch of capitalism gets the rug Mm -hmm. pulled out from under it if I refuse to vilify the things that I'm being told I should be vilifying. Yeah, and it's like the world is also like built in such a way that it's easier to navigate if you consume, if you future-proof your body, like Mm -hmm. if your body is working quote-unquote perfectly. You know, it's like literally harder to navigate the world that we've built if you're not engaging in those things, if you're completely unable to engage, you know? Yeah. Okay, you guys, I have a question. So here's my thing. So I understand that we're talking in the theoretical, but I got to talk about the literal because it is the fact that we don't live forever that has allowed capitalism and the billionaires who come out of capitalism to literally destroy Mm -hmm. the planet, right? Because they're not going to be here. They are, they Mm -hmm. are dying while we are slowly boiling mm-hmm. to death, right? So like, so I'm I'm struggling to mm-hmm. reconcile the idea of capitalism promising immortality with the fact that immortality, if these people did live forever, I feel like climate change mm-hmm. wouldn't be an issue. Do you know what I mean? You know, and so and so I don't know how to They're just planning on going to Mars. Okay. Like they literally just don't care about the rest of us. Okay. They're not like, oh, if I live for 200 years, I better, like, make sure that the Earth is okay because the Earth is where I live. They're like, no, I can live on a rocket ship if I want. Nobody else matters other than me and my cool cyborg body. It's like the mindset that allows you to be a billionaire is one that necessitates you to have, like, an incredibly insular worldview where you are literally the only thing that matters. Right. Yeah. Sorry, you're still thinking like a feminist, Marcel. (laughs) I can't. You're like, surely, surely they would understand themselves as, like fundamentally intertwined with the fate of the earth. And it's like, no, they don't. That's why they want to go to space so bad. Okay, team. So, you know, I want to be, I want to be a better person. And in this lifetime, I'm not super convinced that I'm ever going to be okay with seeing other people's blood, uh, other people's fluids in general. I think I'm just too indoctrinated in the system. But I want to embrace the radical possibilities of the goblin. So Michaela, can you give me like like a top three, top 10 if you some, got them? I just, just some give me go- some, <laughs> some goblin tips. Just give me some goblin tips. Yeah, I can give you tips. 
I think that like, I don't know. It seems like when you're approaching a new lifestyle or aesthetic, you have to make a lot of changes and do a lot of things. But I do think that with Goblin Core, and if you want to go Goblin Mode, the idea is that you actually don't have to make any of those changes. You just have to embrace the things about yourself that you were not maybe embracing before. So I think like a good mm-hmm. way, place to start is just to like do more check-ins with yourself, which takes a couple seconds and you literally don't have to do anything, but just throughout the day be like, am I comfortable right now? What's one thing that I could do to make myself like a little bit more comfortable right now? Or maybe it's like, oh, these pants suck. Or like, I need a blanket or a snack. You probably need a snack. If you haven't eaten a snack mm. recently and you're listening to this, you should have a snack right now. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. You almost definitely need a snack. Hydration too. Take a sip of water. Mm. Yeah. There's water and alcohol, right? <laughs> it's not the right kind. There it's is. It's not the right kind it of water. It is a liquid. Not the it's right not the right kind of water. <laughs> so check in on yourself. Have a snack. Also, starting to pay attention to the ways that you have nature immediately around you. Like I think that people who live in a city think that they have no access to nature and it does suck to not have access Mm. to like a major park or something like that. But that does not mean that there's no nature around you. There's so much nature around you. It is all nature, all of it, all the way down. I think that like, you know, just go outside and count how many trees are on your block, count how many birds you see, count how many bugs are like, hopefully not in your apartment, but nearby. Count how many yeah. bugs are in your mouth right now. Ew. Count how many spiders you have swallowed in your sleeve. Stop it. <laughs> the two of you combined are going to make me embrace capitalism. You just watch. <laughs> yeah, I think that just starting to notice that, like, there literally is a natural world that you are part of that is surrounding you at all times. I think that that's really, like, comforting to remember that, like, mm-hmm. You can build up a city over an area that was once wild, but it doesn't make it less part of the world, you know? Mm, mm -hmm. And also, it's always decaying. It's always returning to the state that it was in before. So paying attention to nature is a second tip. And then Mm -hmm. I would say start paying attention to the things that gross you out about yourself or that you don't like that you do (laughs) or that you think should not be allowed Mm -hmm. in public about you personally and just start asking yourself questions about why that grosses you out why you think you shouldn't be allowed to do that in public why you think it's annoying that you have that one quirk or idiosyncrasy or whatever and Mm -hmm. I think that like if you start like paying attention to that stuff instead of just being like oh that sucks I'm moving on I'm not gonna do that again you'll start realizing like, that's such a stupid thing to be concerned about. That's like not me that's concerned about it. That is like a society that is concerned about me presenting myself correctly. And I don't really care if I present myself correctly. And I don't even know what that means really. Mm. Yeah. Just like, you know, be weird, go goblin mode. And then my fourth tip is, I don't know if you've heard of laundry strips. Well, thank you, goblins, for joining us for another episode of Material Girls. And especially thank you, Michaela Coyle, for joining us as our special goblin guest. Anytime. Michaela, if the people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Well, they can get my book, Goblin Mode, wherever books are sold. So that's, you know, Amazon, Barnes Noble, Bookshop. Ideally, you know, not Amazon, but Whatever you got to do, I'm not going to judge you. Your local goblin bookstore. Yeah, your local indie, your local library. And if you want to find me on the internet, I am on Instagram at mqcoil. And I also have a bookstagram where I just post cute graphics and reading lists, which is at Pretty Boy Books. So you can check Ooh, out either of those. Pretty Boy Books. Love it. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts, plural, on Acast or at awitchplease.ca. Here are some other things you can do at awitchplease.ca. You can sign up for our amazing newsletter, The Latest Banger, Oh My God, Fragile August. You can read our transcripts. You can check out our merch. You can find reading lists for our episodes. And you can learn more about our Patreon. Give us your money. 
It's a good Patreon. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise, praise, especially praise, we live for praise, you can come hang out with us at a witch please on Instagram or X, I guess it's called <laughs> now. Threads? <laughs> Threads for sure. Uh, and we're on TikTok at a witch please pod. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash oh witch please. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please Productions team, including our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. <laughs> our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. And our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted tiers to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude this week goes out to Audrey W., Michelle Y., Linnea M., Larissa K., Kasim H., Alex W., Coraline Carrie W., and Alana B. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then... Later, goblins. Oh.